0: Hello and welcome to episode 85 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with John Strand. John is the owner of Black Hills Information Security a firm specializing in penetration testing, active defense, and hunt teaming services. He's also the CTO of Active Countermeasures, a firm dedicated to tracking advanced attackers inside and outside of your network. John has consulted and taught hundreds of organizations in the areas of cybersecurity, regulatory compliance, and penetration testing. John is a contributor to the industry, shaping penetration testing execution standards in the 20 critical control frameworks. He's also an experienced speaker, having done presentations to the FBI, NASA, the NSA and at various industry conferences. John also co hosts Security Weekly, the world's largest information security podcast, co authored Offensive Security Countermeasures, The Art of Active Defense, and writes loud music and makes various futile attempts at fly fishing. In this episode, we discuss remote workers in the COVID 19 pandemic, validating VPN targets and pen tests, cloud security, developing SANS course material, how to choose what to give away, planning conferences, threat hunting, keeping up with new vulnerabilities, mental health, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, John, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today?
1: Doing very well.
0: Well, as, uh, as we were talking just before we hit record, uh, I feel very fortunate I can finally kind of land you and, and some of the other folks I have come coming up on the show that people aren't traveling as much, but we are kind of in the midst of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. How are you uh, holding up on your end?
1: Uh, so far, we're doing great. Um, it, it's been kind of weird w- with our conference. Whenever we took Wild West Fest virtual, it it actually kind of led us into helping other conferences go virtual. And we've been doing that a whole bunch. Um, and business hasn't really slowed down because I think a lot of companies are a little bit more afraid of the current environment whenever they're looking at computer security. So we've been doing really well so far now i expect that there's going to be a lull there has to be at some point but so far we're weathering it very well yeah
0: i've seen it too on the cyber side you know i I certainly have a bunch of folks that have been impacted whether they've been been in hospitality or restaurants but i feel like everybody i talked to in cyber is is quite frankly not slowed down Um, and if anything there's Mm -hmm. been some upticks had there been any particular areas of interest concern that either clients come to you proactively or responsibly for
1: one of the big areas of concern, there's not like a specific like swelling in a specific type of test, but there seems to be a lot more questions now where if we're doing a penetration test and we gain access to a computer system, what are we doing to validate target? And what are we doing to validate network range? Because so many people are working from home and companies are doing split tunneling. Uh, we just wanna make sure that we don't end up with a pen test report that says we broke into an Alexa, we broke into a fridge, we broke into a Chromecast, and then we find out that was all at somebody's house. Uh, not that we don't see those in corporate environments, but we're doing a lot to kind of explain what we're doing for scope validation uh, before pivoting and moving laterally.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, it still comes down to some of the security basics. And I know you've done work with the CIS Top 20 and other, other, other kind of frameworks along those lines. But mm-hmm. when it comes down to, you know, device inventory, knowing what's on the network, it seems like there couldn't be an element now where kind of this decentralized Network uh, with a lot of endpoints that that can become even even harder.
1: Yeah, it absolutely becomes a nightmare, especially if an organization is allowing split tunneling. So for those of your listeners that may not know, split tunneling is when a user VPNs into work, but then they can still surf the internet going to other websites from their home network. So whenever you're doing target validation as a pen tester, usually what you're doing is you're checking the network interfaces, seeing if there's something like a tuned tap interface for VPN, make sure that that's the IP address that's in scope, and then start ignoring the other things. But you're right. Whenever the 20 critical controls were created. And James and Kelly Tarala at Enclave are the main keepers of that fire. Uh that that inventory was number one and number two. And it was number one and number two for very good reason because it's very difficult to secure something if you don't know what you have.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, at least what I've seen is that it almost becomes and this is you know probably a, a drum we've all be- been beating in, in cybersecurity now for a little while now, but as particularly as people even move to the cloud, it's that, okay, well, it's, it's a web application. It's something in AWS. It's something in Azure. I don't need to necessarily worry about it. If they have the security. Do you still see a lot of that mentality kind of playing out with folks that maybe don't really fully appreciate that there is a maturity level that has to go on with with that technology as well?
1: Uh, You know, we've never seen anything in security where people move to a new technology when it's mature and safe. (laughs) Uh, It's always, let's move to it as quickly as we possibly can. And when you're looking at cloud computing, and even right now, like working from home and what we're dealing with, with COVID and sheltering in place, the areas that we've been taking advantage of for years now, uh, using tools like MailSniper and CredSniper and CredKing, and um, all the different tools that we do for breaking into cloud services, like bypassing two-factor on Google, bypassing two-factor for Office 365, and gaining access to those environments is now even more important. So there's a ton of organizations whose eyes are starting to get open to the fact that you just cannot expect that Microsoft and Google are going to secure your assets for you, uh, that there is a tremendous amount of responsibility that you have to exercise to do that cloud computing migration correctly.
0: Yeah, and and I guess it comes down, I'm, I'm curious, you know. And I've certainly had to adapt and change with a lot of folks um, when we do assessments and testing um, around those clouds. The, the approach tends to be different. Have have you? But it almost seems at times, too, when there's almost too much to go to. How do you kind of help your team and, and organizations prioritize those assets in a way they can say, here's maybe a new way we're going to test it, and here's why we should test it?
1: Now, usually I I don't, uh, just so you know. Mm -hmm. A a tremendous amount of like the genius actually comes from the testers. And we've had like Jordan and Bo and Mike Felch have done a tremendous amount of research in this area. And usually what it is as a tester is what you do ultimately, any technology that you're confronted with, you try to learn that technology. And you end up many times trying to replicate the customer's environment as much as you possibly can and then start taking it apart, taking the APIs apart, taking the documentation for developers apart to actually find those weaknesses in that architecture. Once you do that a lot, you start finding these repeating pi- patterns or chiasms in network security flaws, and it becomes a lot easier to start finding those kinds of ebb and flows in the network to take advantage of
0: them. Yeah, because it seems, I mean, there's, again, there's, there's still basics there, right? I mean, it still comes down oh. to access control and, and having the, the right rules in place, um, still are relevant facts, <laughs>
1: Yeah, one of my all-time favorite instructors uh, basically said that information security is nothing but an inspired application of the fundamentals and basics. And he's right. You know, uh, Many organizations we break into is because of weak passwords. We break into organizations because an API is exposed that shouldn't have been a- exposed. A lot of those fundamentals are in place. It's not like our team is like, whoa, we need to exploit Spectre, Meltdown, Rowhammer today. It, it's it, it doesn't quite work that way because it's so much easier to just take advantage of those fundamentals.
0: Now, you know, certainly, I mean, kind of walks through a little bit of your history. How did you get into what were, you know, what we call cybersecurity information security these days? I mean, what, I mean, I know you've been doing it for some time, but what was, how did, what was your lead into it?
1: So my lead into information security actually came when I was at Anderson Consulting slash Accenture. Uh, Anderson Consulting, and then they became Accenture during the middle of all of this, was in the middle of the world's largest class action lawsuit in history ever. It's Cobell versus Department of Interior. Uh, billions of dollars for Native American misappropriation of Native American funds. And I was right in the middle of that. And Judge Lamperth was the main judge at the beginning of it, uh, actually hired a pen testing group to come in, and an InfoSec luminary who's like a big brother to me, who was one of the people running that team, um, didn't know him at the time, met him years later, and they actually broke in. They were able to steal money from the tribes through CBS, not the news company, but uh, the check writing part of Depart- Department of Interior, and that's what really got me into security, and then I moved from Accenture on to Northrop Grumman, started teaching with the Sands Institute, and then BHIS, and everything took off from there.
0: Yeah, and you've done quite a bit of work with Sans and I have been fortunate enough to I took the Sec 504 course um in, in one of the community courses and and got to listen to hours and hours of your voice as I prep for it with, oh, the, with the recording. Thanks. No, it was great. I mean there was there's some amazing stories and great insight. Um but you know I, I think like the fact that you've done you know sec 504 560, Metasploit 580, I mean they're 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 not easy or Unvoluminous courses. I mean, there's a ton of material. How do you, I mean, how did you get into it and how do you balance the time and in, in kind of creating that level of course material?
1: So, whenever I first got into, uh, let's just start with 504, and I started teaching 504. Um, there was a lot of stuff that I knew, like the the fundamentals of a buffer overflow, the fundamentals, the procedures for incident response, uh, the ideas of scanning and things like that. Um, But there's a big difference between understanding at a a, a high level, like what a Nessa scan is, and then getting down to the point where you can actually get in front of a room of 20 or 150 people and teach it. And I basically set out for every single slide that I would was teaching in Sans 504. As you know, that's that was over a thousand slides of yeah. material. I wanted to make sure that for every single slide that wasn't like a roadmap slide, that there were three things on that slide that weren't directly, uh, that were not on the slide itself. So if we were talking about, you know, port scanning, what are some different cool end map switches that weren't mentioned in the slides that I think are kind of neat that I could bring to the table? Uh, What are some problems with doing port scanning as a standard user versus root? Basically making sure that there was that depth for every single slide that I felt comfortable talking about additional aspects that it wasn't just what was on the slide behind me because I'd never thought that the students got good value out of somebody reading the slides to them. So those narratives, those stories and going technically deeper was how I got started. In fact, when we moved back to South Dakota, my wife found this crate, this monster crate, and it was filled with three ring binders. And uh, she, she calls me up while I'm at the office one day and she goes, "Uh, honey, I just found this huge, huge like box and it's filled with three ring binders. And I'm like, what, what, what do they say? She said, they all have a two, like 2.1, 2.2, 2.3. And that was my one box that probably had five, 6,000 printouts of websites, man pages, and tools that I prepared for day two of SANS 504. Um, and that's what I was doing back you know, in, in 2003, 2004, 2005 when I was prepping. And that was just to make sure that I had the depth that I could go far beyond what was just on the slide. So that was kind of the prep for it. And it didn't hurt that I was doing this as part of my job, but nobody – that I know actually does the entirety of the catalog of SANS 504 every day in their job. Um, It's not like, Oh, it's Monday. It's our catch poisoning day at work. That's not how it works. So there was always concepts and things that I was better at than others. And I was constantly trying to find the areas that I was weakest and focusing on them just to make sure that I could teach them effectively.
0: Yeah. It's funny. It's, it's definitely one of those books that I've kept dog eared um, with, you know, it looks like a manifesto of the sidebar notes that I have in that one that I'll pull out stuff every, yeah. occasionally. But even like some of the fundamentals of going through the IR process, I thought it was it was incredibly uh, incredibly useful. And I always had all my staff go through that, and certainly did a lot of people go through through five hundred and sixty. And I think on both of them, what. Um, both as somebody that needs to learn the material, but as a hiring manager is the fact that there's, you know, really the kind of hands-on aspect of testing on it at the end and really getting people I've I've kind of made everybody get coins at the end. Uh, I've been, I've been proud to say most of my employees have, have gotten a coin through the classes, but yeah, I think it's, but I think that's, that's a very interesting point too. It's like, you know, it's not just um, going through, you know, the material it's then really having to apply it as well. Um, You know, certainly as you, kind of see people entering in this industry and there's a a million different areas. You know, what's some of the advice that you give to people when they are saying, geez, do I want to get an IR pen testing or just generally where, where, where do you try to steer them as they as they orient towards our industry?
1: Um, Anytime anyone's talking to me and they basically say, we need to, I, I want to get into computer security and how do I get started? Um, I always kind of start, once again, with the fundamentals. In fact, we have a, a webcast called the Five-Year Plan to Information Security. And it breaks out if you're a new student. It's geared towards college students. But it's, it's basically breaking out. You've got to learn operating systems and networking fundamentals. You've got to start learning a coding language. You have to understand the basics of different applications and protocols. And then you can start having a conversation about security. Um, it's basically someone saying, I want to be an architect. And they just jump right in, but they don't know anything about concrete. They don't know anything about wood. They don't know anything about steel. They don't know anything about, you know, sheer moments. They don't know anything about the fundamentals of engineering and architecture. So really, that five-year plan for InfoSec is really my answer to that question to get people started. Most of it is the fundamentals of operating systems, is the fundamentals of networking protocols, is the fundamentals of getting started in a coding language, and basically kind of setting you up on that path to get your dream job.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, there's no uh, silver bullet to it, but it is, it is interesting. I I try to steer people towards that too. It's like, you got to really know how windows operates, you know, because there's your, you know, whether you're doing offensive testing or uh, response, you need to know what the normals look like. And I think that that exposure and experience is, is kind of critical.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: So, you know, with, with uh, some of the other things you've done too, is certainly with, you know. Through Black Hills Information Security, it's uh, the the blog has been great, and there's always tons of great stuff. One of my favorite posts of all, all time, and something that I've used quite regularly is, you know, kind of poking holes in firewalls with all ports exposed because everybody's like, "Look, our firewall's so secure." I'm like, "Well, everything's open to go out." There you go. Um, and you know, how do you kind of decide? Okay, well, what, what's some What's some of the type of stuff that we can use demonstrably is, you know, maybe, and I'm kind of air quoting, free information versus things that you might kind of hold back as trade secrets or do you not? I mean, is there something that, you know, what's your approach to kind of giving back and, and where um, do you decide?
1: So a couple of things. Uh, let's start with, with kind of a basic framework. My basic framework for BHIS is give everything away. Um, everything we can give away, there should be an asterisk there. Yeah. If we have something that we find where the customer specifically tells us that they do not want us to talk about it, or if we have something that we're pretty sure will create harm, then we don't. An example would be uh, we found a Google, cal- Google calendar injection vulnerability that could literally just crater entire Google app domains like and no recovery. Like We could burn an entire company to the ground um, in a matter of, I think it was just like one email going in. That's not something that we're going to release publicly, right? You know, we're just not going to do that. We coordinated and worked with uh, Google. Uh, they ended up paying out to Mike Felch and and Bo Bullock, the two researchers on our side, that actually found that. And that's that's kind of a line that we don't want to cross, right? Mm-hmm. And there's also the other problem that we run into in the fact that there's so much that we're finding, we're having a hard time keeping up with webcasts as far as what what to do and get it out there. So there's a bunch of things that we discover, and we just basically, it, it just kind of moves past us that fast. So we're trying really hard to make sure that we keep up, but we want to give back as much as we can. And we have this shirt that says, proudly sucking at capitalism, but it doesn't mean that I think that capitalism is bad. It's just we traditionally suck at it. There's a whole bunch of conversations that we have at BHIS where it's like, we could take this and we could sell this. We could make money off of this. And the people on this merry pirate ship with me have a pretty predominant philosophy of, ah, who cares? Put it out in the community, make things better. So when you're seeing tools being released by Marcello and when you're seeing tools being released by Bo and by Joff and all of these different people, it's because the ultimate goal is making the industry better. And we have found the more we give to the industry, the more the industry gives back to us. So that's kind of the core founding principle for what we are. You know, we don't have any VC-backed funding. Um, we don't have any investors. It's all of us. If we if we break even and we all get paychecks, we're happy. And uh, that's ultimately where we want to stay.
0: Nice. Yeah, I, I think – and look, it's, I, one of the things that, again, is people say, you know, what do I have to do to get into the industry? Is like, give first. There, there's a million things yep. to research. Don't think that we've figured it out. Most of us, you know, you get this – once you get over your imposter syndrome, you start realizing, okay, I, st- I definitely don't know everything and nor should I. Yeah. And, and so it's like really kind yeah. of getting out there and, and kind of finding new things to either research, publish on, or just give back. And, you know, that's why I was kind of, uh, I was very happy when your team reached out to me for the Wild West Hacking Fest to to speak in, uh, in South Dakota and hopefully we can do it in person. But, you know, putting on yeah. an, an event like that, that has to be kind of an undertaking within itself. Where do you, you know, where, again, where do you, where do you find time and how do you decide, okay, I'm going to do, you know, a couple of events like this a year?
1: So most of the time we get asked to do things and we just kept keep saying yes. So <laughs> there's not an issue of like, well, here's how much we're going to do. Um, We're not very good at saying no and stop. We have a lot of conferences that want us to come out and either sponsor, present, do a booth, do a cyber range, all these different things. And we try to basically meet as many of those as we possibly can. And I I, I really wish there was a rhyme or reason to it. I know Jason and Velda on our team, they work very hard to do the best that we can to develop some type of organization around this, but I'm an inherently chaotic person and I surround myself with other inherently chaotic people. And somehow, you know, you're finding chaotic high achievers that are crazy and doing all kinds of stuff, but they manage to get things done, um, we actually managed to get quite a few things out there for the community. So we really don't spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to do and curating it because there's so much that we can do. We're barely keeping up with what's right in front of us.
0: Gotcha. It, you know, with, you know, in every kind of conference and organization that, are, you know, every conference has a little bit of a goal or message. Is there specific things with Wild West Hacking Fest that you want to accomplish or kind of have like a, a mission objective for?
1: Um, everything, every, everything we do from a webcast to the, the actual conferences, and I wanna make sure that anybody that attends the conference, whether it's Wild West Hack and Fest, um, or if we're at another conference where we're providing a cyber range or doing training, we wanna make sure that somebody can take away from that something actionable they can go back and their lives and their work has been enriched in such a way that they've learned something that they can apply. Um, It's not just about being edutainment, which is always fun, but it's making sure that there actually is an impact and there's some type of change for the better uh, within the attendees and for the training. So if you start with that as the goal, Um, And you kind of couple that with the insanity that we throw into it, you end up with something like Wild West Hacking Fest where you step back and it's like lockpicking the lockpicking village where we have tons and tons of doors that you can break into in a variety of different formats. We have SDR hacking. We have the the standard cyber range that you would expect to have at anything like, like for meta CTF. So there's more there than any human being can do within the days that we do our conferences. But that's also cool because it makes people want to come back again. And that's really what we're after. We want people to keep coming back because there's so many cool things for them to do.
0: Oh very nice. Now one of the things I saw you working on too is with, with stuff in the act of countermeasures and, you know, for kind of that there's, you know, I a term that's evolved with inside the industry, certainly the last couple of years. And I'm always interested in people's perspective, but threat hunting and what a, what threat hunting is in an organization. Um, Cause I, it's yep. something that I, I try to answer to people and how it's different than IR with the operational tempo. But you know, a lot of people are starting to see it and like, Oh, it just sounds cool. What is it? And how would you explain yeah. it to people?
1: So it's easy. Uh, basically with network threat hunting or just threat hunting in general, you're doing anomaly analysis to find evil, Right. And you're not always going to find evil. You're gonna find a lot of Whiskey Tango Foxtrot but you're looking for evil and you're looking for evil through anomalies. So if you're looking at user and entity behavioral analytics, honestly, that is now automated in a SIM, but for years that used to be threat hunting where you'd pull down all the event logs and check the authentications and then correlate that with what users are logged into which workstation. We now have tools that do that automatically. So you're basically trying to do that long tail analysis. What is the weird anomaly for network connections out here? What is the weird anomaly for authentication spikes or, um, software that's installed. And then you're hunting those things down and you're going through and you're removing that long tail and building awareness along the way. Anytime you're using signatures and a threat hunt, you're not threat hunting. That's signature blacklist detection. And there's a place for that, right? Antivirus, IDS, IPS absolutely has a place for that. It doesn't mean that it's worthless, but with threat hunting, you're moving beyond those things and you're going back into the anomalies and you're looking for the weird.
0: Yeah, it, it's 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 yeah, and it seems like the again the, one of the things that I've, that I've tried to stress to people, at least I picked up, in some of the sand that I've gone through with it is the operational tempo. It's it tends to be you know air quoting a little bit more nine to five than we're an IR team. It's hair on fire Friday at at four p.m. type of thing. Is that something yeah. you see too, where somebody's working? In, and where do you see that kind of align? I guess with the IR teams, with the penetration testing teams, SOC analysts. Like how do that? How does that ecosystem kind of all work together?
1: You're really getting into purple teaming at that point, and that's Mm -hmm. a good thing, right? Um, Even the shirt I'm wearing now is a red team shirt. It's a super dark purple. Because even if you're doing offensive, there's always a a tinge of blue that's going to color what you're actually doing. So you're basically kind of building out, uh, just using a mental framework like something like the MITRE ATT&CK technique matrix. And the fact that now teams can actually replicate attacks with tools like Scythe or Atomic Red Team to do that automation And then they're using that to kind of fuel their incident response capabilities to make sure that they can detect it. And what you're doing, and it's really cool when you do that purple teaming, is you're reducing the amount of area that an attacker has to hide in your organization. So if you can do that, if you can actually do threat assessments and you can do that replication of an attack technique, and you can tie that to your sim, and you can tie that to the endpoint, then you're basically creating less area for the attacker to hide. That actually makes threat hunting a lot easier because the amount of lateral movement that an attacker has, the amount of command and control capabilities that an attacker has are severely limited. And now you're at the point where you know what you don't know, it makes threat hunting just that much easier all the way through. Gotcha.
0: And so how does, how does something like the AI Hunter uh, product or well, I guess explain that a little bit yep. what that is and how that works?
1: So I was I was going through a, another company's blog and they were talking about threat hunting on the network and they were still very focused on signatures. Uh, they were looking at this header for this specific uh, backdoor command and control has this string. We need to write a signature for that string. And that's garbage. Right. That your, your IDS IPS should be doing that. That is literally their job. So what you're doing with network threat hunting is you're looking for anomalies, like non-human connections that are leaving your environment. These would be connections that have a consistency in their patterns and intervals. They're beaconing. They would have a consistency in their patterns for, let's say, data size, their connection time, and being able to sift through all those connections very, very, very quickly over a 24-hour period, and then being able to say, look, this connection between one of your workstations and a server in Latvia is not a human connection and it's transferring 20 meg uh, an hour. That is absolutely something that you want to investigate. So it's moving beyond that signature and trying to find that anomaly. That's, you're trying to find that signal and the noise, something that is not a human. It is automated. doesn't necessarily all, always mean it's evil, but it's something you want to be aware of, that somebody has some type of automated communication out of your network.
0: And, you know, with that, I mean, we talk, obviously, the the, the buzzword bingo the last couple of years, particularly at RSA and, and a lot of the bigger cons is, you know, machine learning and AI. And I guess they, they all have their place. But what's, what's your view of how they integrate into security
1: operations? So there's a number of different cool uh, AI algorithms that you can actually look at. If you're looking at Splunk, there's things like k-means clustering that'll help you identify patterns within the noise within your logs. Um, We don't use k-means. We use a cousin of it called MadMom, medium average distribution of the mean. And these algorithms are great for finding patterns that it would take a human a long time to actually identify. And I should caveat that. If you visualize data correctly, a human can pick out those patterns much faster than an AI algorithm can, but many times we can't do data visualization of absolutely everything. So we need algorithms to be able to identify flat histograms and connection intervals or consistencies and data size. So when you're using artificial intelligence or machine learning, really there's just really solid classification algorithms that you can bring to bear that'll actually percolate that information up to the end user. You know, we talk about AI hunter. AI doesn't stand for artificial intelligence. We talk about actual intelligence is what the A stands for. And the whole point about that is to present this information to a human being. They're the ones that actually make the decision, not an automated if-then-else statement.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that the what most people try to look for in, in levels of auto- automation and uh, computer-assisted learning is the ability to help the analyst. But there needs to still be that kind of gray matter that makes the decision.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Has to be.
0: So, you know, with with, you know, kind of everything kind of changing now, it's obviously we're in a kind of tumultuous world. You know, are there things, you know, four years ago, there was obviously a lot of issues with uh, election issues and countermeasure or uh, counterintelligence things that were happening from from nation states as you kind of look forward past this pandemic what other types of things have worried you before the pandemic maybe and as a result of it into the future when it comes to cyber as you kind of look at the horizon
1: well the big thing that bothers me about the cyber is that you know there was this push to cloud computing and it just became like a mad panic zombie rush to cloud because organizations to survive they can't expect users to always come into the office and work at all. I mean, that may not even be possible for months now. So you have this just this hyper-aggressive like change to moving to a VPN-style technology uh, for your workforce. And for many companies, they had a percentage that would work remotely, and you could work remotely, but now everyone's doing it. How does that actually change the information security landscape? Whenever we're talking about issues of pen testing scope and validating that I'm actually on a corporate network and I'm not at someone's home network, what types of precautions do I have to go through as a tester to ensure that I'm not moving laterally? And then also recording the fact that I didn't move laterally, because as you know, the information security team gets blamed for everything. A network goes down after a pen test a week later; they blame the pen test. Well, right? Yeah, I've had That's them, the yeah, I've had them
0: rip, rip boxes right out of the wall while they're running. And, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah it wasn't it, the problem. It yeah. happens all the time. So now let's take that and compound that to where now a user's at home, and uh, all of a sudden, let's say some nasty things pop up on their computer system, and they're quickly trying to find an excuse like, oh, honey, well, this isn't, this isn't mine, but oh, there was a pen test. Yes, it must have been the pen tester that did that. And now you're getting into this weird space of security. People are now going to have to start defending themselves against stranger and stranger accusations of what happens on personal computer networks um, unless we get in front of it. And most organizations are nowhere near getting in front of it at all. You know, kind of
0: like if you're looking at it from an architecture standpoint, where where would you suggest some organizations either put in different types of controls or technology that could, you know, help them help themselves in that
1: regard? Good good question. One of the things I'd recommend is looking at your VPN technology and making sure it conforms with VPN best practices. And an example of that would be don't let people split tunnel. When somebody connects to the VPN, everything goes to the corporate network. But that also requires an investment in enough bandwidth to support that. So this really becomes a chicken and an egg problem very quickly. That would be one of the first things I'd recommend architecturally looking at that. The second thing is the day of managing your endpoint security on-prem is over, right? If you're running like an endpoint security product like Carbon Black and you wanna run the main management council on your own environment, Yeah, that doesn't make any sense whenever 90% of your workforce is working from home and they may be split tunneling and those systems don't have access to that management interface. For your endpoint protection, you are now absolutely looking at a cloud managed solution um, that all of these systems can report up to one managed cloud instance and you can have that visibility on the endpoints regardless of where they were. And then of course the fundamentals, right? Long passphrases, enable two-factor authentication, and kind of stick to those core fundamentals before you start getting too crazy with anything else.
0: We seem to, you know, again, going around some of the stuff like basic ACLs and and account management, it's almost, at least what I've seen in a lot of cloud environments, And curious if you've seen it too, is those accounts get forgotten even faster than I've seen in on-premise AD accounts. Uh, There's just like, you start going through these, like, what the hell are these? Like, oh, yeah, we set it up for some MSP two years ago. I'm like, what? With no two-factor and admin rights, okay, that's terrifying. But yeah, you start seeing yeah. this this inventory of user accounts is is that an area that is kind of an attack surface area that's neglected?
1: Oh, it absolutely is. But we we never fixed that problem. Um, we never fixed that problem with on-prem accounts. I mean, if you look at Kerberos roasting, right. Curb roasting is just one example of how service accounts that honestly should never have been running uh, even back with it, but they were up and running. All of a sudden they're still in existence today. They're not being used. Their passwords are ridiculously, stupidly easy uh, to actually break. Um, yeah, we never fixed that. That's curb roasting as, as an example. Now we're moving things to the cloud. Where we're having even less visibility it just makes it that much harder.
0: You know, are are there is there hope in that, you know, with some of the things that at least I've seen with played around with Azure AD but you know kind of cloud-based directory services so to speak. Is that something that could can work in in kind of a architectural perspective?
1: I think it absolutely can. But once again, it goes back to that deployment. Um, most of the organizations that we see are running hybrid, right? They're running Azure Active Directory and they're running on-prem Active Directory and they're kind of conflating the two and tying those two together. And the problem is a lot of the security vulnerabilities that existed with your on-prem Active Directory now, now somehow make it to the cloud, right? Just ah copy the whole thing over. Um, and then you have a whole bunch of different management interfaces uh, for doing Azure. And you can even do PowerShell type management remotely over Azure and that's open. and. There's APIs and things that are exposed like manifest.xml files in email accounts that actually allow you to create persistent malware that follows the user, whatever system they log into, like Ruler back in the day from SensePost. So there's all these new things that are popping up. And the thing that's the hardest is there's, there's nothing out there that's like a book that says, oh, cloud security for your environment. By the time you printed that thing, it would be out of date. Um, So it's moving so quickly that people are not catching up with it. And a lot of the things that you think would be good, like let's put all of our accounts in the cloud, maybe, but then there's all these new APIs and things that are exposed that you never expected to be there, and it creates new security vulnerabilities. And it's kind of one of those weird, twisted things where it's like, that that sucks. But at the same time, it's awesome to be in information security uh, as a field, just because it's dynamic, it's changing, and none of us are getting bored anytime soon.
0: No, I, I think that, would, that was a thing last last couple of years. You know, having come back from old old school NT 3.51 3.5, 3.5 training back in the nineties to then be thrust into the Azure world and go, I really know nothing about this and have to relearn everything. Um, and I think that's that's one thing I try to encourage on people too is that this is this isn't. Industry. Once you get in, you're you're constantly having to reset um, and relearn learn new things. Do you ever find that 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 becomes exhausting, or is that always exhilarating for you?
1: Um, it gets a little tiring. I, I got to be honest. Like the past few weeks, my ability to handle brand new things that are popping up is is getting thin. Um, usually I'm super excited it's like oh there's this new technology there's new bypass technique and that's really cool and I get to watch the testers and work with the testers on those things and to see them do amazing stuff every day but right now I'm doing a lot more virtual things like this I'm doing a lot more virtual cons I'm doing a lot more uh, just webcasts and the webcasts have exploded in size over the past three four weeks so yeah I'm actually starting to get a little bit run down um, just trying to keep up is somewhat exhausting um, and uh, I really hope we don't have another Spectre meltdown, Rowhammer, Bash, um, what is it, shell shock type vulnerability, pop up over the next few weeks because this industry is very, very spread thin right now.
0: Yeah, I, I've seen it, and that's that's something that. Um you know, i debating and building a talk a little bit about is, is around, you know, it's come up in a couple of the cons the last couple of years, but about the mental health issues, you know, people seem to be starting to feel the weight of either being in isolation, you know, folks like me, that's typically on the road, 60% of the time, you get thrown yeah. off your cadence and it, it has an effect on you. And how do you manage and deal with that? Um, it's something that is often not talked about, I find in our industry.
1: Well, and and I try to be fairly open about that from my perspective, right? I I retired from the SANS Institute for a couple of reasons. One, it was time. I couldn't give the level of love, care, and feeding that 504 needed. Um, But also for me mentally, teaching the same thing again and again and again, month after month after month. I realized that I was retracing the same steps in my life, and I was losing 25% of my life by doing that. And that forced me to, to make a change. It also has an impact on your family. I was in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, and one of my students added up all the time he could find all the classes that I had taught for the Sands Institute. And it was something like I had been gone for three and a half, four years out of 15 Uh, from my family. These are all exhausting things, right? And I was losing this this concept of who I was. You become John Strand Sands instructor, who is not a real person, who is like this figment in people's imagination, you know, kind of uh, just this weird thing. And you start getting your head so far up your own ass in thinking that you're better than what you actually are. That hurts. Um, And then coupling that um, I, I started having suicidal thoughts and I was able to couple that to alcohol and I stopped drinking. It wasn't like, you know, I was addicted to alcohol, went through withdrawals or anything. I was just like, well, I'm done drinking. And it hasn't been a problem since then. But I know a lot of people in the industry travel like crazy and they start getting depressed. I know a lot of people are drinking in the industry and they have no problems with it, right? But there's also people that may have problems with that. And in InfoSec to be able to stand up and say, look, I'm not okay is something that traditionally we suck at right um if you go out on twitter and you say i'm not feeling well today you're gonna have a bunch of people that tell you like you know hey well it's gonna get better here's some pictures of puppies and then you're gonna have somebody that says save the planet and kill yourself you're like oh that's really harsh um and luckily those those really negative sections of the industry are getting quieter and quieter and quieter because i think mute is an amazing thing but that mental health that problem set, right? And being able to say, I've got an issue. And then having something like Mental uh, the Hackers for Mental Health and having quiet spaces at conferences where you can decompress. And then being able to hear someone say, I used to drink, I don't anymore. I think that that's kind of opening up people's eyes that you don't have to fit this perception of a hacker, of somebody who's at parties and is wild and is crazy and is dropping zero days and is going a thousand miles an hour all the time. It's okay to see other normal people and to see some of those people that were crazy for years, take a couple of steps back. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the new generation of kids that are coming up, I know we get old and we're like, oh, these millennials, these, these millennials kick ass. Some of them are horrible, right? They fit the stereotypical precious snowflake millennial. But by and large, most of the younger generation, they're they're better than, than, than my generation was. And uh, I think they're more in tune with that. And I'm, I'm, for me, I'm perfectly, perfectly fine with growing old and riding off into the sunset.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mention that too, because it's, I think it was a lot of my younger staff that helped me come- kind of adopt that when I realized at a certain point that they were the bulk of my staff. It was people, you know, 10, 15, up to 20 years younger than me. And yeah. I ha- they weren't just a bunch of middle-aged white guys that were all like kind of like having the same attitude like and the perspective. Yeah, <laughs> And it, you know, it forced me to, when s- they were never saying, look, I need time off. I'm like, you know what you do? So we all do. And really forcing yeah. them to really, where I had to threaten them to DDoS or their phones if I caught them working um, on hours when they shouldn't, or if they were on vacation. I was like, you need so- the downtime. And I was like, and they're like, "Oh, you're so altruistic." I'm like, "I'm also a capitalist. Like, I'd rather you also come back fully loaded." Um, yeah, you know, I'd want to see people. Well, arrested. and you
1: know, <laughs> you know what burnout looks like. Whenever somebody's working yeah. sixty to eighty hours a week, they're not, they're not producing more. They're actually producing. No, I a have lot to
0: rewrite less. those damn reports. I don't like doing that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. So my favorite story on this is um, I had two weird things happen. I was out at sushi with uh, a couple of our testers, and uh, one of the things that really just floored me is me and one of my, my friends who's kind of in our age group. And then the two ladies that we were with are kind of in the younger generation. And the waiter came up to my friend and I and, and the, the gentleman that I'm with and goes, you two have very lovely daughters. And we were just like, oh God, no. Yeah. Um, so we were like outed as being old. But I remember, you know, telling like my younger testers stories of my days at Accenture and Anderson Consulting where I'm like, yeah, this one week we were doing this, this build and we were rolling it out and people were sleeping under desks and people worked 70, 80 hours that week and I didn't see my kids. And they just look at you and they're like, why? Yeah. Why? Why did you do that? I'm like, well, you know, it's the project. You got to pull it together. Were you making more money? No. Why? Why would you do that to yourself? And it's like, well, damn it. I don't have a good answer. Um, so I think that having those types of conversations, I really think that like the millennial generation is much more in tune with, you know, why exactly would I break myself on rocks, uh, for working tremendous amounts of overtime for somebody that is taking that, that that sweat of my labor and just making gobs of money. And in our yeah. generation, you remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was the latter, man. Uh, yeah. You you did that because you wanted to get up to be that guy. And I, I think as I got to know a lot of, and they were almost always guys, right? Yeah. It was a whole bunch of white dudes. Um, and a lot of those guys, whenever you sat down and you honestly had conversations with them, multiple divorces, addiction problems, uh there was a lot of issues and i think i think i'm hoping that a lot of us in the gen x uh generation looked at that and we just said no i i don't i don't want to do that
0: yeah and i think it 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 does um parallel a little bit to to you know to to work a little bit i mean how often would you continue to um ignore the triggers or warnings with inside an environment say, no, this, this is the way we always do it. This is the way it has to be done. It's like, you have to be open to saying, wait a minute, let's, let's think about this maybe a little bit differently and, and, and look at those warnings more, um, more realistically.
1: Well, and, and I, and, and I think that I, I would like to think that our generation has seen a lot of the toxicity and the warnings. And I remember, dude, I remember, okay. So my, my whole, like, Perception changed on September 11th back in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working on this project It's a big project. We got a time frame. We got to get it done. We got to get it done. We got to get it done. And on my way to work, uh, the first plane hit the Twin Towers when I was going into work. And the second plane, of course, hit shortly thereafter. And everyone is devastated, right? You know, I lost friends that were with me at St. Charles whenever I went through the program at Accenture that got sent there and I got sent to Denver. And we are all just like completely just, just destroyed. And I remember one of our managers walked in and just this guy's name is Mark. He just comes in and he's like, hey, everybody, all right, we got to get to work. We got to get this build up, Nora and John. You got to do this. You got to do this. And like Nora's crying. I just got done with the point where I could hold myself together and not cry. And then I started crying. And I went up to him. And I'm like, dude, do you know what happened? He's like, yeah, terrorist attack, airplane, hit buildings. We got work to do here, people. Let's get it done. And eventually, we all got sent home, but seeing that 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 in, that commitment to whatever t- crazy timeline he had in his head, realizing that that is toxic, and I didn't want to be that when I grew up, I think that that was a huge eye-opening event.
0: Yeah, and and that's a, one of the things. Talked with some other folks on on various Slack channels recently too, is that. I'm hoping that you know <laughs> there's some good that comes out of the pandemic, but people – like I was talking with a client the other day, and she's a pretty pretty high up there, um, data breach partner, and his kids and dogs are barking in the back. He's like, look, I'm not putting that stuff on mute anymore. I have a family. I'm working from home. You you, you know that. I'm not hiding that. And I'm like, no. And I, you yeah. kind of – people start becoming a little bit more real, and, I, and my hope is that out of this that people get a little more patience and empathy with each other, particularly in our industry, to just say, hey, let's, let's give everybody a little bit more uh, breathing room.
1: Well, and, 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 you know, I, I think that there's some things that we're never going back to, right? Like, I honestly believe that people are working from home and it's working, right? Like, there's no way they're going to be able to go to their corporation and say, uh, yeah, I want to work from home. And their corporation says, no, productivity goes down because now we're going to have facts. And I already know talking to a number of companies that they're basically saying, well, our productivity is actually going up. It's, it seems that people don't have to commute an hour and a half each way every day, as many of them do in D.C. Mm-hmm. They can get more done. This is kind of neat. Now, there's people that suck at working. from home. there's no question about that. But I think us we're, as an industry, not just security, but the entire economy, we're never going back to the way it was. And that's a new reality that, uh, that I think is going to be hard for a lot of companies to be able to handle. But luckily for companies like ours, working remote, I mean, pen testing and breaking into companies is all remote by its very nature. So that works out really well.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I've, been, I've had remote teams now for about five years and people are like, oh my God, you guys are working remote? I'm like, yeah, we have been. It hasn't been. <laughs> hasn't been that. So it's yeah. been a very comforting cha- uh, to see everybody else kind of come into that. Well, John, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where, where can folks find you on, on the interwebs?
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, so finding us on the interwebs, we're at Black Hills Information Security. Just Google it or blackhillsinfosec.com or bhis.co. And uh, I encourage everyone, check out our webcasts. Uh, go to webcast and register. We're not spammy, Well, we just give you tons of like sans quality content for free every single month. So sign up for that. It's a great place to learn.
0: Yeah. And uh, I've definitely, I've been, I've been working with a lot of folks in the, in the Denver community, kind of mentoring stuff. And I really like the, uh, the, you know, 30 things to get you started. So I'm going to be sure to share that with a bunch of folks uh,
1: out here as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: All right, John. Well, thanks so much. Have a great day. You bet. Take care. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on cybersecurity interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks, we'll talk soon.